You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jim Young. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here and to open up God's words with you. I have a question for you. What do you think is the most underrated passage in the Bible? It's a tricky question because I know that if I asked you what your favourite was, I feel like I could have a good stab. That if it was in the New Testament, it might be something from the Gospels, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It might be something from Paul's letters to the church, something encouraging. If you're daring, it might be even something from the book of Revelation. And if it was from the Old Testament, then it's likely to be Psalm 23, or Psalm 103, or Numbers chapter 6, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. But this... Is a trickier question. What's the most underrated? I would put forward that 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the most underrated passage in the Bible. If you were an Israelite, I could imagine that this would have been one of the most cherished promises that God had ever given to his people. And yet, how often do we talk about 2 Samuel 7? It is such an important passage because what it does is help us, helps us connect the story of the Bible from the first to the last. It helps us connect the Old and the New Testament. Because if you are asked that question, how do you connect the Old and the New Testament, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and David and Samuel and the the message of the New Testament, the the story of Jesus and his apostles, what would you say? How do they connect? It's a It can be a tricky question, but I think the answer is the promises of God connect them. That the promises of God that he makes to Abraham and to David, we see fulfilled both in the Old Testament and the New. And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is a book filled with the promises of God. Promises that connect from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And so I'm excited to jump in to this passage, this underrated passage, and see what it might have for us this morning. We read, The king settled down in his palace. The Lord had given him peace and rest from all his enemies who were around him. And the king spoke to the prophet Nathan. He said, Here I am, living in a palace that has beautiful cedar walls. But the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do what you want to do. The Lord is with you. Everything seems good. David is resting in his beautiful palace. He's kicking back. His feet are up. He's watching his beloved Bethlehem football club on the big screen. He's he's at rest. And he thinks to himself, well, look at what I've got. I'm in a beautiful palace with beautiful walls and beautiful things. And the Ark of the Covenant, God's physical presence with his people, is in a tent. Surely that can't be right. Surely that, how can I be in a palace, but God's in a tent? That can't be right. So David has a great idea. He says, I will build something for the Lord. He doesn't even say it. He just sort of presumes. Nathan's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, David. Go ahead, do what your heart wants to. The Lord is with you, except the Lord hasn't actually spoken at this point in time. See, when God speaks, he has something of a different idea. 
That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? And I love this because the first thing that God says is, Go and tell my servant David. If you've got the passage in front of you, you'll find that in the first three verses, David, one, is not named, and he's referred to as the king. The king is sitting in the palace. The king has an idea. The king talks to Nathan. When God speaks, he says, Go and tell my servant, David. There's something incredibly humbling about entering the service of God where all we are are servants. There are no kings and queens in the kingdom of God for us. There was a story going around on social media about the late Queen Elizabeth. And she desperately wanted to see the Lord Jesus return. And a chaplain once asked her, well, why do you want to see the return of Jesus so bad? And she replied, I'd love to lay my crown down at his feet. There's something humbling about coming into God's kingdom, about being in God's house. It's flattening that God loves you and knows you absolutely, and yet there is no richer or poorer, wiser or smarter, powerful and influential. We are all servants in the house of God. David included, the king, the king, the king, tell my servant David. And there's a rebuke here, because he's not just saying, would you build me a house? He's saying, would you build me a house? How could you think of this, David? In fact, what God goes on to say is, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? His point isn't that it's a bad idea. His point is that he hasn't actually asked David to do this. He hasn't asked anyone to do this at this point. It's a good idea, but I think what God is trying to get at is the motivation of David's heart. David is embarrassed that he lives in a palace and God is living in a tent. So he's trying to make it up to God. He's trying to earn something, to show God, you've blessed me so much, let me bless you. But that's not really the way it works. In fact, I wonder whether that's the orientation of lots of our hearts. That many of the great things that we try and do for the Lord, many of the times we've been trying to be faithful, are trying to show God either how much He matters to us or whether we're trying to earn our way with God. Whether many of the great projects that have happened throughout human history have been trying to earn God's approval. In fact, sometimes I wonder whether we as a people, as a community, would be at least less burdened by the fact if we had actually earned our relationship with God instead of being given it as a gift from the Lord. That if we could quantify somehow, that we could work out, if I attended church this many times, read the Bible this many times, if I could pray this many times, if I could love people and be kind and be obedient to the Lord this many times, then I would have a good relationship with God. That would actually suit us a little bit better than it being given as a gift from the Lord with nothing we can do to earn it. But it's a little bit like, imagine this. Imagine that you're at a party. It's not just any party, it's your party. 
And someone has got you the most incredible present that anyone could ever give you, the present that you've had your heart's desire on, something that is so totally you, something with, like outside your wildest dreams. For me, it would be an specialized S-work Tarmac SL7, which means absolutely nothing to any of you. Ah, DI2 carbon fiber forks. Ah, I'm getting shivers up my spine. It is a bike. That is correct. Yeah. And you've received this gift and you start to talk to the person who gave you the gift who says, I, I can't accept this gift. I have to make it up to you. Let me, let me mow your lawn. Let me, let me wipe your windows. Let me cut your hair. Let me cut your toenails. I will do anything. But it kind of diminishes the gift, doesn't it? It stops being a gift and starts being a transaction. And I wonder whether that's how many of us view the gift we've been given by God of grace. And I wonder whether that's what God is doing with David. He's reminding him that everything he has is by grace. It's a gift. Tim Chester points out that in the ancient Near East, kings would build temples for their gods as a quid pro quo. I'll build you a beautiful place for you to be, and in return you will bless me with prosperity with health, with security, with a kingdom that runs and great military victories. But it's not like that with God. God has given David the kingship, health, prosperity, power, influence, great military victors, and David has done nothing to earn it. He has not secured any payment. It is a gift of God's grace. In fact, there seems to be this switch that goes on in the passage, that David starts out saying, I'm going to do something great for God, and God reminds him, actually, let me remind you of all the things I've done for you. Just have a look at how many times God says, I have done something for you, in the following, in, from verse 6 on. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from to this, uh, to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from finding the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from me before you. And I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly. Go back one. There we go. From the time that I, appoint, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David set out at the beginning of the chapter to bless God, only to discover that God was far more concerned with how God had blessed him. That David was going to do a great thing for God, only to find that God was reminding David of the great things that God had done for David. God didn't need anything from David. He has no lack. He's not waiting for David to make him a house as if God couldn't do that already. And so he reminds David, look at what I have done for you. 
That's far more important to me. There is nothing I cannot do. It's a reminder for David. It's a reminder for us. And God moves from the promises and the blessings given to David to the nation of Israel. He moves out and says, I'll make you a nation. I'll make you a house. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And he starts to make, I think, some of the most consequential promises to his people in the whole of the Bible. And he gives three promises in particular. The first promises are that he will make them a house. So he says in verses 12 to 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Next one. He shall build for me. I'm going to put this away. There we go. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7 starts off with David so concerned that he had this beautiful palace and that God lived in a tent. And he was going to make a house for God and yet God seems utterly unconcerned, both with the house that David was about to build and also the house that David was living in. It's not the kind of house that God is concerned with. The kind of house that God promises to build for David and Israel is not a big building, something with four walls, but rather a line. He's building a dynasty. He promises to David that I will make a house that never goes out, a house that never falls down, a never, house that never falls away. I am building a people for myself, and I'm going to do it through you and your line. How many times have we noticed that when a great leader of a nation or a great leader of an organization either passes away or steps down, that the nation and the organization just goes to shambles. Infighting takes over. Everyone wants a piece of the pie when this leader goes away. And God is promising, not so with you. There will be a house that I will build that will not go away. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When David dies, his house won't go with him. His physical house may pass, but the house of his line will not. But it's not the only promise that God makes. We go to the next slide. God promises to be a father to his line. He says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted inflicted by human beings. Next slide. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Can we just go back to 14 for a second? This is interesting, right? Because if you just looked at the first line, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Who do you think this is talking about? Great. Excellent. Sunday school champions, gold stars abound. Except there's a problem with the next line, isn't it? Because the next line is, when he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use. And when did Jesus commit iniquity? When did Jesus sin? So we have a bit of a problem here, don't we? In that we can clearly see that God is promising something that is fulfilled in Jesus, and yet it doesn't quite fit. Well, it's what I would want to call, and this is not the technical term, but the two hills conundrum. Is that often in biblical prophecy... 
there are two hills that it's referring to. There is a close, immediate hill that is very apparent to the people around that time, and there is a further, greater hill in which the prophecy is fulfilled. And so if you asked an Israelite who this, who this prophecy is about, their answer wouldn't be Jesus, it would be Solomon. Solomon's the king that this prophecy is about. Solomon is the one that God will be like a father to, and he shall be like a son to me. Solomon ushers in the golden age of Israel, where not just nations are conquered, but nations come to Israel to receive wisdom and discernment and insight from King Solomon. And it's interesting that when King Solomon is referred to, there's a number of times where it said God loved him. In 2 Samuel, when Solomon is born, the first thing that is mentioned is God loved Solomon. When Solomon receives his wisdom, it's mentioned that Solomon walked according to the ways of the Lord. It seems very apparent that Solomon is like a son to God and God is like his father. And Solomon is not perfect. He receives the rod. But we can also see that this points points further. That it's not just about one who is like a son, but it points to the time when there will be a father and that not just a father, the father and the son. And God will display his steadfast love to his people. It points forward to the greater hill in which Jesus fulfills this promise that God will send his son to us. He will be his father and include us in his family. But God also promises an everlasting kingdom. If we can go two slides over to 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is important because the kingdom of Saul ended. The first king of Israel has no sons to take his place. He has sons, but none that will take his place. The kingdom, the line of Saul ends. David's line does not. And it's not like it goes from strength to strength. Israel is this great nation all the time. No, we have the golden age, but there's this ebb and flow throughout the history of Israel. Israel breaks apart and God keeps his promises. That Israel has foolish leaders and God keeps his promises. That Israel has sinful leaders that take them away from God and yet God keeps his promise. Sons of David keep coming to the throne. The line of David continues. Sin will not confound the promises of God up until the moment. God is keeping his promise up until the moment. In Luke chapter 1, he says this. Well, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God keeps his promises. That's who he is. He is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Growing up, one of the questions that I was asked again and again as a young Christian was, do you believe in God? And it's a fine question if you've been asked that question before, but I think there's actually a better question. It's not just do you believe in God, but do you believe God? You see, the Bible is a book full of the promises of God, and those are promises not just to be store- meant to be stored away in our heads, but to be cherished in our hearts, to be held onto. I was struck 
uh, last Sunday night with the young adults over at our house. We were reading the book of James chapter 2 and this verse popped up from James. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even demons believe true things about God. They just don't, they don't believe that God is good. They don't believe that God is faithful. They don't believe God's promises. They shudder and tremble. And so it's not just a case for us is do we believe God, but do we, be, uh, do we believe in God, but do we believe Him? I've been a Christian long enough to know there are plenty of us who know the promises of God, but do not believe them to be true for us. Do you believe Him? When he says that anyone who turns in faith will be saved. Do you believe him that if you trust in Jesus to save you from your sins, that he will separate them from you as far as the east is from the west? Do you believe him in John 3.16 when he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life? Do you believe God? When he says that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be brought into his family, adopted as a son and daughter. Do you you believe that you are a son or daughter of the king if you trust in Jesus? Do you believe that he is faithful to finish what he started, what he says in the book of Philippians? Do you believe that he will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that he has equipped you with every spiritual gift in Christ Jesus, as it says in the book of Ephesians? Do you believe that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus? The question is, do you believe God? The promises of God matter for us because from the first to last, we see, we see that God is a promise-making and far more importantly, a promise-keeping God. We make promises every day that we break. Yes, I'll take out the bins. Sorry, Sarah. God is not like us. God never forgets his promises and God never breaks his promises. Just like he kept his promise to David, he will keep his promises to you. So my encouragement to you is not just to know them in your heads, but to hold on to them in your hearts not just to know about them, but to cling to them. God, you have promised this. I I am believing that this is true. There is immeasurable comfort and confidence and encouragement and assurance in knowing what God has promised to his people. So I'm going to pray for us now that not only will we know about God, not only will we believe in God, but that we would believe him at his word. Let me pray for us now. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word reveals that you are promise-making and promise-keeping God, that you love your children, that you never leave them or forsake them. God, I pray that we would believe that the word you have spoken are true. I'm reminded, even as I speak, of the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help our unbelief. Even now, reveal the areas of our life where we don't believe you. We might not believe that we can be saved. We might not believe that we are really children of God. We might not believe that you supply all our needs in Christ Jesus. We might not believe that you separate our sins from us and count us white as snow. Lord, help our unbelief. Reveal it to us and let us bring it to you. Simply say, God, change my heart. Help me trust you. Help me love you. Help me believe you. 
Reveal to us all the ways in which we are trying to earn your approval, earn our status before God, earn our relationship. But God, let us take hold of grace like a gift that in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises made to David, we might see that grace is a gift for us. And there's nothing we can do to earn it so that we can rest and enjoy being in your presence. God, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.